We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. Uh, If you didn't come with a Bible this morning, there's one in the seat rack underneath the seat in front of you. You can take that and use that in their time. I encourage you to look at the Bible on your your smartphone, your dumb phone, whatever kind of phone you have, your paper copy. Let's just look at God's Word together because as we look at His Word, it helps His goodness and His love sink deeper into our lives. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12. Before we get there, man, I am so encouraged at the ways that the Lord is at work in our church. A couple weeks ago, we heard testimonies on the mission trip to Tijuana. And I was on the trip, and when I was hearing the testimonies, I was like, wow, that was an amazing trip. And I was there. It was just, but I didn't realize. I was like, wow, this is so awesome. And then to hear how the Lord's moving uh, amongst the children at Antioch Kids Camp. And one cool story uh, that I'll fill you more in on uh, in the coming weeks but Forerunner Mentoring uh, is a group that we've, we've got some Forerunner people, is a, is a ministry here in our neighborhood that we've partnered with for a number of years. And they work to uh, provide mentors for kids in our neighborhood that are growing up in homes without a father present. Uh, many of you volunteer with them. Many of you have given to them. Uh, we love those guys and girls. We love what they're doing. And uh, they reached out to me a few weeks ago because they've realized the importance with the kids that they're trying to help mentor of literacy levels, like the ability at which they can read and how much that affects their their engagement in school and then trajectory for life. They realize, man, this is a really important thing, and so they're desiring to build out a literacy lab, not an illiteracy lab, a one that helps people to read, not helps them unlearn to read, a literacy lab to teach kids in our neighborhood just to reinforce what they're getting at school and give them extra practice to help them in that crucial skill. I mean, think of how important reading is to your life. Well, they reached out and said, hey, we're trying to outfit this literacy lab, and we wanted to know, are there a couple people in your church that might want to buy something off our wish list uh, that we're trying to get to, you know, outfit the, the lab? I said, well, send it over. We'll see. And, and they sent it over, and I looked at it, and we talked about the, the giving that, that our church has just, our church giving over the last couple of months. And what was so cool was we were able to message them back and say, hey, we're not going to connect you with a person or two that will buy one or two items. We would like to fund the whole literacy lab. And out of your giving, we're able to do that. And that's so cool. So we'll get a picture when they get it all finished. Um, but man, that's awesome that kids in our neighborhood are going to have life-transforming skills poured into their life through the generosity that God's put in in your hearts. Amazing. Way to go, church. It's just a fun time to be amongst the people of God. I want to say over the next couple weeks, I'm going to be out of the pulpit uh, for a particular reason. I want to share with you why. It will be great messages each week, but, but I'm sensing, just as we're heading into a new school year, sensing a fresh calling from the Holy Spirit to take a step back to seek him afresh and even invite our church to seek him afresh for some things that that he's calling us into in the coming months. And so in order to do that, I want to take some focus time personally. I want to ask you, I know many of you pray for our church. I want to ask you to be praying for our church specifically over the next couple weeks that we'd really hear clearly from what God is calling us into as we go into the new school year. If you have a, a scripture that stands out, a, a word, uh, just a, a thought that you think may be important for uh, us to consider, I'd love for you to send it in to hello at AntiochDallas.org uh, so that we could collect those and really hear from the Holy Spirit. We want to be a spirit-led church. 
when we respond to where the Spirit is calling us. And so I'll share with you more at the beginning of August, kind of the culmination of some of those things, but just wanted to fill you in on that and ask for you to be praying. Okay, we are in Luke 12, and if you've been with us for the last year and a half, we've been going systematically through the Gospel of Luke. And about a year and a half ago, I started something in my own personal devotional life, just as we were starting to go through the Gospel of Luke. I've long had the habit of daily having times of looking at Scripture and prayer, but I decided, I said, I want to take time every day to look at a Gospel, to look at some passage of Scripture about Jesus, His life, His ministry, His character, His vision, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, didn't matter where. I was just like, I just want every day to start the day by looking at Jesus. And that was about a year and a half ago. And this past week, I was thinking about that. And I realized, I was like, this little thing has become one of the most meaningful places uh, in my life. Because I just realized, like, when I've been looking at him, I've just been overwhelmed with how good he is. Uh, My heart's been changed. My, my, My relationships are being changed. My vision for life is being changed just by looking at him each and every day and letting the goodness of who he is saturate my heart and transform me. It's been making me a new person even. I mean, it's just been amazing. And I love that as a church, we've been going through each week looking at Jesus in one of the Gospels, particularly Luke, looking at him together. And just learning from him and being with him and seeking to practice his ways and build his kingdom. And I was hoping, I was just like, man, I hope that this has been as transformational for you as it's been for me. And we're going to look again at Jesus today. Now, in in studying the Gospels intently over the last year and a half, uh, one thing has stood out to me that I never noticed before. That's the amazing thing about Scripture is you can read the same passage of Scripture uh, over and over and over again, and there'll be new things that you'll see, you know, five years in that you didn't see on on day one. It's just amazing. It's unlimited in depth. But one of the things that I've noticed is that Jesus is often frequently uh, talking about final judgment. He's talking about judgment day over and over and over again. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, one Bible scholar went through the Gospel of Matthew and found 40% of the stories or teachings of Jesus, 40% hit on final judgment. 40%. Every major sermon in the Gospel of Matthew concludes with a vision towards Judgment Day. Every one. That's amazing. As we've been looking at the parables in Luke of late, we've been seeing Jesus is talking about that day over and over and over again. Now, the church in their history has often abused or misused this idea, right? You can think of uh, the indulgences in the medieval Catholic church or in the Protestant Reformation, the antinomian swing, and just kind of people getting all confused on this. And you may be confused on it as well. But what I hope that we do today is that we can kind of pull back some of uh, the, the, the shadows And we can look clearly at Jesus because I think we'd all have to say, man, if Jesus talks about final judgment this much, this is something that he thinks is really important for you and I to know. He wants us to know. He thinks it's important for us to be aware of, so much so that he's talking about it again and again and again. 
And when I was graduating college, uh, my desire was to go into law school. I wanted to go to Georgetown Law School and then go into international relations. And if you've been to law school or considered it, you know that there is a test that you have to take in order to get into uh, the law school that you would hope for. It's called the LSAT. And so I wanted to get into Georgetown, and I looked up what they needed you know, in terms of an LSAT score. And I was like, okay, I need to start studying. I need to start preparing because this test that I'm going to take has the power to open a door to, for me, what I felt like was going to be the rest of my life. Like maybe the most important test I'd taken up into that point because so much of the things I thought were in my future hung on that test. So I was like, okay, I need to find how, I don't even know how to prepare for this. I don't know what's going to be on it. I just know that it's on this day and I'm signed up. Uh, and I know that it's coming. And so I looked around, and I found people who had done really well on the test, and they kind of talked about, well, you need to study this, and you need these books, and buy these old tests, and, and this is how you prepare, and all this stuff. And I learned from them, and then it helped me prepare all the way up to the test. Now, what would have been even better than someone who had done well on the test was if I could have known someone that was one of the test makers themselves. Like if I could have known someone who's writing that test, who could tell me, hey, Zach, this is what you need to study. Don't worry about that. This is what's going to be important on this test. You don't have to focus on those things. Do you realize how powerful that would be if I had access to someone like that? And I would just take what they told me, and then that would shape the way that I prepared for the test. Now, eventually, I I did score what I wanted to on the test and and was headed that path, and the Lord totally redirected me, and that's a different story for a different day. But that test was significant, and I wanted to be prepared. And Jesus is talking about final judgment because it is a test, and he wants you and I to be prepared. And the amazing thing is Jesus is not speaking from the perspective of someone who did well in the test and is now offering some advice. He's teaching us as the person who's writing the test himself. And he cares enough about you to say, hey, I want you to come here and I want to show you. This is what's going to be on it. This is important. It's coming. And I want you to be prepared. I'm for you. I want you to know these things. I want you, I want you in the know. He wants the whole planet, actually, in the know. And when we read today, again, we're not just talking about abstract concepts. We're hearing from Jesus, our King. This is the test. This is the final judgment. And here's what's on the test. So I want to invite you to lean forward. Maybe take out some notes and take some things down, because this is really important to Jesus. And so it should be really important to us. We're in Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaking. And uh, we're going to read through starting in verse 41. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Now, Jesus has just given two parables, one about the master who serves, which we studied a couple weeks ago, and one about the, the thief in the night, which we also studied a few weeks ago. So Peter's heard both of these parables, and now he's trying to figure out, okay, are you telling these to me? Are you telling these to the disciples? Are you telling these to the people gathered around us? Are you telling these kind of to whoever would hear them? Like, who are you talking to? Like, he's obviously confused, right? He doesn't know. He's not clear. So he's asking, point of clarification. Now, Jesus, as he often does, he doesn't answer Peter's question directly. 
he actually answers his question about parables with another parable. So he says this. He says in verse 42, the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager who the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he, the master, will put that servant in charge of all of the master's possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when the servant does not expect him, at an hour that the servant is not aware of. And the master will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus got done telling that parable to Peter, I'm not entirely sure he was any more aware of who are you talking about and, and who. And, right? This is, this is one of those that's like a little bit of a head scratcher. Hard to follow, uh, at least in our day. In Jesus' day, though, a lot of this made a lot more sense because it's very familiar to them. And so I want to take you into kind of the, the, the historical context of this parable. And I want to do it as we go through this verse by verse. So if you'll notice... In verse 42, to answer Peter's question about who are you talking to, uh, Jesus says, who then is the faithful and wise manager? That word manager is the word steward. Now, the first time I ever encountered a steward was when my family and I, we lived in North Africa, and tourism is one of their big industries there. And what they would do is, is owners or business investors would come and they would buy an old house they would redo it to kind of classic uh, Mediterranean or Arabic architecture. And then they would rent the house out as a bed and breakfast. And so the owner would come with the vision. They would come with the resources. They would put up the capital. And they would hire a steward to oversee the project. And the steward was in charge of hiring and firing of the staff. The steward was in charge of kind of the, the culture of the house. The steward was in charge of the food and the way they took care of guests. They were supposed to honor and serve the, the owner, right? And they were entrusted with this incredible role of privilege and responsibility, of opportunity and influence, but also they had a really important job. That was a steward. That was my first run-in with a steward. Recently, I watched a movie that I'd encourage you guys to watch called Best of Enemies. It tells the true life story of school integration in Durham, North Carolina in 1971. And in the movie, uh, there's kind of two main characters. One is the head of the local chapter of the KKK, and Durham was a hotbed for the KKK at that time. And then the other one is a woman who was the head of kind of the, the black activist group. And the story tells their real life story of how they came together and worked together, and it's remarkable. But during the movie, uh, one of the things that happens is the KKK leader finds out there's a local business owner who owns a hardware store 
who has employed a black manager. And the KKK leader is very upset by this. And he goes to the store owner, who's a white guy, he goes to him and he says, hey, why have you employed a black manager as opposed to a white manager? And the store owner looks at him and says, well, apart from my wife, there's no one I trust more in life than him. And the KKK guy was like, why? And the owner said, well, we fought together in Vietnam. We served together. We fought for our country together. He earned my trust then, and I trust him with everything that I have now. Wow. The KKK guy didn't know what to do with that. It was actually a turning point in the, in the movie. I won't spoil it any more than that. Great movie. But you get the idea on this steward deal. It's a position of trust. So it's not just influence. It's not just authority. It's not just responsibility. But you wouldn't entrust someone, as the case is here, to be a steward if you didn't trust them. It's a position of trust. Uh, There are other places in Scripture where we see stewardship or we see someone put in the role of a steward. Maybe one of the most famous ones is in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. We see Joseph interprets a dream of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, interprets a dream that he has, and Pharaoh appoints Joseph as steward over all of his house, meaning over all of Egypt. And he appoints him as the one in charge. He says, apart from me, no one's going to have more power than you. What you say goes. He appointed him in that position of leadership or stewardship. Joseph was a steward. But that's actually not the first place in Scripture where we see stewardship highlighted. In the opening pages of Scripture, we see God creating the world and creating humanity, mankind, you and me, male and female, made in the image of God. And God, the creator God, gives to mankind, gives to humanity, gives to you and me. He gives us a stewardship. He tells Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to have dominion over the earth. I want you to be in that position of stewardship for the purpose of prospering the planet. For the purpose of developing the planet and developing humanity and bringing about her best and highest end. I want you to be a steward. Stewardship from God the creator is what was entrusted to humanity from the beginning. Adam and Eve and mankind, we don't have such a great track record with that stewardship. But it's important for all of us to realize that you and I are powerful people. You are more than just a collection of atoms and molecules. You and I are made in the image of God. You didn't get here by accident. God had a purpose and a plan, and he has entrusted you and I with a stewardship. You're a powerful person. You have responsibility. You have influence. You have purpose. And so when we hear Jesus telling this story about a faithful and wise manager... Yes, he's speaking into their day, but I believe he's also speaking to humanity as a whole because we've been given a stewardship just like this servant that we are about to read about. You and I are stewards. So then what happens next? So Jesus says, the faithful and wise manager who the master puts in charge of his servants in order to give them their food allowance at the proper time. So what does the master do with the steward? We find out later that the master is going away. And so he tells the steward, I want to put you in charge of my house. 
I want to put you in charge of my slaves. I want to put you in charge of the household. And my main agenda, my main point that I want you to do is I want you to make sure that the servants get their food at the proper time. His main concern was that the servants were taken care of in his absence, that they had the food that they needed to, to eat while the master was gone. That was his number one concern. Now, if you're sitting in Jesus' day, remember, you are under the governance of the Roman Empire. You're sitting there, and you're very familiar with masters, with stewards, and with slaves. It's everywhere. But the masters in Jesus' day... They had unlimited power. They could order their wife or their children to be put to death like that with no problem, no recourse. Whatever they decided, that was the way it went. Philosophers said that a master had complete and total control of his slaves to do whatever he might wish. He could do whatever. That included into the realm of sexuality, And if you're familiar with the Roman Empire, you know their sexual appetite was large. And so slaves were often sexually abused. That was what was normal for a master. That was his prerogative, his right in Jesus' day. And so if you're sitting there hearing this, the first thing you're thinking is, wow, this is a really different kind of master. Because rather than the master talking about, hey, while I'm gone, I want you to keep everybody in line. I want you to rule with an iron fist. I want you to double my investments when I return. What he's talking about, what's a priority to him, is I want to make sure that you take care of my servants. Blow away. Do you see if you were hearing this in Jesus' day, you'd be like, that's a really good master. That's the kind of master that, that I want to have. I want someone like that. It would have stood out as such a stark contrast to the common master of Jesus' day. And so he gives the steward this mission. He gives them this appointment. And then he says to them, uh, he says, uh, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds so doing when he returns. And so the master is going to come back and Jesus is saying, it's going to be good for the servant whose master finds him at work doing what he's been given to do when the master returns. And then look what the master does. This is amazing. 44. Truly I tell you, the master will put the steward in charge of all of the master's possessions. Now think about this. It doesn't say when the master came back, the steward would have saved the household from these robbers that were going to break in and he fought them to the death. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say there was a dramatic house fire and he risked his own life to save them all. And so now the master wants to reward him. The steward just did what he was asked to do. Just basics. I I want you to make sure everyone is fed. Here's the food. I want you to feed them. That's all he was asked to do. And when the master comes back, he doesn't overlook it. He doesn't say, well, that's what you should have done. You're my servant. You're my steward. That's just normal. No. He's the type of master that notices these things, that gives encouragement and honor. In our language, he's handing out promotions. He's handing out bonuses. He's noticing not for some heroic act, but just for the steward carrying out the master's vision for the house, doing the job that he had been given to do, the very mundane job of giving people their food. He gets rewarded. He gets honored. 
he gets encouraged. Do you realize how different a master that Jesus is speaking of is compared to the other masters of Jesus' day? Now, the other thing that we learn from reading this passage about a steward is that he was not just serving the master, but with this master in particular, the steward was called to serve the other servants. He was in a position of power, but that power wasn't to be used for himself. That power was to be used to bring about the prosperity and the well-being of those entrusted to him. So he was a servant to the master and a servant to the servants. And you realize, just like this master had a vision to serve, he's caring about those in his stead, the steward, to be faithful to the master, had to adopt that same ethic, that same vision for life, that same belief that my job and my responsibility and my privilege is not just about me, but it's about me leveraging what I've been given to take care of other people. So stewardship is a role of servants, both to the master and to the other servants. Now notice this. But suppose, and here Jesus introduced is a, con- a contrast. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. What does the steward do? He starts to act not like his master, but he starts to act like the other masters of the day. The steward says, well, my master's gone. He's delayed in coming back. I don't know why. Maybe he won't return, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run the show now. I'm going to call what's right and wrong, not, not what the master said. I'm going to do it my way, the way I want to do it. Right? And, and what does he do? He abuses the other servants. Now, again, Roman culture... Uh, that the beatings and all that stuff, it was common, again, for servants to be sexually abused. It was common for servants, if they stepped out of line, to have hands cut off, to have eyeballs cut out, to have lips cut off. Very, very gruesome. And I know that makes us a little uncomfortable to talk about, but this is the way that it was. So when you're reading this passage and you're reading, okay, the servant starts to beat the other slaves, I want you to have in mind what's going on. He's abusing them. He is, he is destroying their lives. He is, I mean, just coming after them. Rather than feeding them, he's feeding himself. Rather than doing what the master assigned, he's doing his own assignment. He, he, he's giving himself over to drunkenness and everything that goes with that. He's living like the masters of his day, not like his master. The steward has now put himself in place of the master. And I don't know when we're reading this parable, I don't know where you see yourself. I don't know if when you hear this, you're like, well, I think I'm, I'm listening to it like I'm Peter. Or I'm listening to it like I'm somebody in the crowd that Jesus is talking to. Or if when we're thinking about this, you're thinking about yourself as kind of the steward. Or maybe you're thinking of yourself as kind of the under servants. I don't know where you are, but I'd like for us just to press pause on the story for a moment and for us to pull out a chair that's the seat that one of these underservants, the ones that are now being abused, that they would sit in. And I want you to put yourself in that seat for a moment. And just imagine with me, if you will, what would be going on in your mind when this happened? 
You've got this incredible master who loves you and cares for you, and you have an incredible place to serve. And the master has given explicit orders while he's away that you are to be taken care of. And yet, the steward who was supposed to do what the master asked has now taken over, said, I'm the captain now, and is taking things in a very different way. Your life goes from one from being blessed and like this is amazing to one of being beaten. Your life goes from one of being taken care of to being just you're on your own. Where you have this master that becomes a tyrant. What would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? I mean, maybe you think I'm going to rise up, I'm going to kill that guy, and we're going to solve this problem. And then you realize what's going to happen to you. You're probably just going to be killed. Or you're going to be sold to another household to be a servant there and to live in the same conditions that you're now living in with this as a steward. You really have no hope. You have so few options. Think about how crushing this would be to your soul. Let's press play now and just continue in the story. The master of that servant will come back on a day when the servant, when the steward does not expect him to return, in an hour that the steward is not aware of. So if you're there and you're in that, that seat of the, the, the underservants and you hear the master's voice in the house, what are you thinking now? You're probably thinking, is he even going to notice what's been going on? Or is he going to come back and he's just going to be so focused on his businesses and his, you know, finances and kind of his agenda. Maybe he's tired from the journey. Maybe he's just going to be focused on that and he's not even going to notice what's been going on. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe when he finds out, maybe he will find out what's going on, but he'll say to the steward, well, I don't know. Boys will be boys. That's fine. Let's just try and get things back to order and just give the guy a slap on the back and kind of carry on. Maybe he won't care. But when the steward, when the master comes back and you hear his voice and you hear him look into the care of his servants and you hear that his order of priority is finding out how they were taken care of. And then you hear that rather than giving the, the steward a slap on the back and just boys will be boys, that he holds the steward to account. And not only holds him to account, but brings the steward to an end. And in so doing, brings the injustice that had been going on in the household to an end. If you're one of those underservants, what are you thinking or feeling now? I'll tell you what you're thinking. You're like, oh my goodness, my master is so kind. He loves me so much, I cannot believe it. This is unbelievable. He has come back and he has seen my case. He has seen my need. He has seen what's happened to me. And he's stepping in. And he's putting it to an end. I love this master. He's so unbelievably good. I want to serve him all of my days. That's what you would be thinking. That's what you would be feeling. If the master came back and ignored what had gone on, or just slapped the guy on the back and said, well, you know, try harder next time, we wouldn't call that master good. Imagine if you put this in terms of parents and family. Parents hire a babysitter, says, hey, I want you to take care of, you know, the kids. We're going out to do this. They come back. Babysitter 
has been abusing the kids. The parents just look the other way. They're like, those aren't good parents. All right, what's a parent going to do? I'm a parent. I'll tell you. I'm going to turn into the Incredible Hulk. Like, I'm going to be, this is a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like, this is a revelation of the master's goodness if you're the underservant. Now, if you're the steward and you hear the master's voice, what are you thinking? You're probably thinking the same thing. Ah, I wonder if he's even going to notice. I wonder if he's just going to kind of be consumed with his own businesses and his own kind of dealings. And I, don't, I don't know if he'll care. Or if he notices, will he like, just kind of give me a slap on the back, boys will be boys, and, and move on, you know? Will it be that big a deal? So when the master notices and calls you to account, how would you respond? Well, I want to show you something, because sometimes we read this and we do feel like that, that the master has turned into the Incredible Hulk, and it's like Bruce Banner, and all of a sudden, like, there's this rage that's overtaking him, and he's just lashing out at everybody. But I actually want to take you into Matthew's version of this parable, and I think it helps us understand what's going on here, because Matthew tells the same parable. He just includes one line that's a little different at the end that I think helps us see a little bit more about the steward. So Matthew 24, it's up on the screen. And when the master returned, he will cut him into pieces. He will put him with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to talk to you for a moment about the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth. I had always thought of that phrase. I don't know about you, but when I'd heard it, I thought it related to torture. I thought, man, this is like hell. God puts people in a torture chamber and just turns up the fire. And there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because people are in so much pain. What, what we see in Scripture, though, is when these, this phrase is used, it actually means something very different. It's not referring to torture. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is what people do when they don't get their way. It's what people do when they're offended. It's what people do when their toys that they think are theirs are taken from them. It's what people do when they get a judgment that they don't like and they come against it. So rather than a steward being like, well, I, I guess I just didn't realize that this was what you wanted me to do. I'm so sorry. Rather than doing that, or rather than realizing, man, I, I just, I made the biggest mistake. Please forgive me, and I'll do whatever I need to do to make things right. Like, that's not the steward's response. Like, like he's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. How dare you? How dare you call me out on this? I deserve this. I'm, it's within my rights to do this. Who are you, master, to judge me? You should be running your house different anyway. It should be about serving me, not them. Who are you? How dare you? You get the idea? It's challenging. It's not repentance. It's rebellion. It's I don't care what you think. You're wrong. It's gnashing of teeth. It, gnashing of teeth is this. Just turn to your neighbor and just gnash your teeth because it's kind of fun. Dentist, you can get mad at me later for having people do that. But it, it is that rising up in defiant pride at what the master has called him to account over. So now you start to see, oh, this isn't like he got a 99 on the test to 100, and now the master is really mad. This is like when he's confronted with his sin, he doesn't even care. He thinks he's right anyway. So the master says, well, there's going to be a consequence for what you've done. Now, 
Second thing that I want to I point out to you um, is best illustrated by my high school English class. I don't know about you, there were some classes that I really enjoyed, and then there were other classes where I was like, I don't think this is for me. I don't get this. And I, I get English, but in this English class, we were reading uh, famous fiction books. Lord of the Flies, Animal Farm, Great Expectations. You might have done that in high school. And what we would do is we'd read these books, and then we would talk about them. And talk about that these books were fiction, they were stories, but they were stories with a point. That they were trying to tell some deeper meaning, and so they were filled with symbols. And, you know, like in Lord of the Flies, when Piggy's glasses break, it's like symbolic of they're losing their way and they can't see anymore. Uh, and so there's like, you've got to understand that that's what the author's trying to say. And there's other details that don't matter at all. Like a tree on the island, well, that's not important. It's just a tree. But it's part of a bigger deal of they're gone back to the Garden of Eden. And you need to see, don't lose the, the forest for the trees. Well, I was just so confused. I was like, how do you know when this white hat is really significant or when it's just a detail that's in a fiction story trying to tell another point? I was so confused. Maybe you were too. And I could find cliff notes or spark notes, but that was someone else guessing at what the author was trying to say. And I was like, how do they know any better than I do? I mean, everybody's just guessing here. It's like, what I really wish was if I could get with the author and just be like, hey, man, uh, or ma'am, either way, you know, a couple hundred pages. I'm sure it's a great story. Could you just boil it down for me in a sentence, like what you want me to know? Like, could you just help me out here? I don't know if you ever had a class like that. That's what I wish I could find. The amazing thing about Jesus as a teacher is that he does that for us. So if you're trying to process, okay, cutting him to pieces, what, what I want you to see is that he's, he's ending the abuse. But cutting to pieces is not a play-by-play. Jesus is not intending to make it a play-by-play of how God dispenses judgment. He actually gives us, Jesus gives us, hey, if you miss everything else, Get what I'm trying to say in a summary sentence. In a moment, he does this with so many of his parables. When he talks about the wise and foolish builder, uh, he's, you know, they're building on the sand or the rock. He, he says, I want to make sure that you build your life on my teaching. That's like building on the rock and your, your foundation will be good. That's what he wants you to take away. Not, well, I wonder what kind of glue they used on this particular project and what does that mean for my life. He's like, no, 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 don't worry about that. This is the big idea I want you to get. We looked at the parable of the sower and the seed. You don't have to wonder about what kind of seed was sown. and What do those birds mean? Jesus just answers it at the end. He says, hey, big takeaway, be careful how you hear. It matters how you listen. Parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not, well, should we care for people by taking them to a hotel? Like, why not a hospital? And do I need to fund them? Or, or all that. No, no, he's like, no, no, no. Who is the neighbor? Go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. He gives you a summary sentence, right? Uh, the rich fool, you know, and he builds the barns and everything, and you don't have to wonder, well, is, is building barns bad? But maybe I could do a 401k, guess a little different. No, Jesus just said, hey, big idea for everybody that's in the remedial group, like me, everybody that needs this, be rich to God. That's the big idea. Well, he does the same thing here, and this is so important for you to see. Jesus is not making a play-by-play on the anatomy of judgment. He's not. We can go into other scriptures where they talk more about it, but what he's doing here when he's saying, hey, this is what I want you to walk away with, is summed up in verse 48. He says, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, 
much more will be asked. That's the big idea. You don't need to walk away with an understanding, well, is he cutting people? Is he beating people? What's he doing? No, no. Jesus is trying to say, look, I just told you a story because I want you to know your actions matter. Your decisions matter. You've been given a stewardship. I want you to think about what you've been giving and are you using it in a way that honors the master and serves people. That's the big idea. That's the takeaway. That's what he wants us to know. And as he's talking about final judgment, he's telling the way that we prepare ourselves now is by looking at the stewardship which we've been given and how are we stewarding that. Again, this isn't a grand going out and defeating Goliath. This isn't parting the Red Sea. This is the steward's nine-to-five job. This is, I imagine, some, some, some grains, some chickens, making sure everybody has food. It's very mundane. But it matters. Jesus is saying the work of your hands and mine matters. The relationships that you have and I have matter. Our words matter. And we need to think about the stewardship that we've all been blessed with, whether we feel like it's a ton or a little, whatever it is, and it matters. It's significant. And it has consequences. It's significant and it has consequences. That's what Jesus is trying to, for us to walk away with. And then he goes on and he reinforces that by saying, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know uh, and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. Like he tells another kind of semi-parable with the same point. They would have been very common to their day, Right? That whether you have you know a lot, there's going to be consequences for you living in line with what you know. Or whether you know a little, there's going to be consequences for living in line with what you know. Everyone, high or low, is important. And there are consequences for all of our actions. Wow, that's like a really empowering message and a really motivating message. And that's how Jesus wants us to prepare now, again, back to the underservants. You realize when the master returned that you would be like, my upside-down world has just been set right-side up again. That's what you feel. And that's what we should all walk away with today. Because as the people of God, if we took this message and we viewed our life as a stewardship, and we viewed the point of our life as not about making much of us, but about honoring our master who's loved us so well and serving others, you realize our world would be a really, really, really different place. And it wouldn't just be a few servants in a story long ago that would say, wow, the Lord turned my upside down world right side up again. There would be testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people getting a revelation of the goodness of the master through the way that you and I steward what we have and the opportunities that we've been given. And there would be person after person that would say, man, this world that seems so upside down, God use you to turn it right side up. Again, for me, it would change the world. It would change the world. I want to invite you to stand. I don't know what you're going to have in your hands this week. It may be a textbook. It may be a computer. It may be a diaper. It may be uh, construction equipment. Whatever it is, you have been given a stewardship by the master. You're significant. You're important. 
and the work of your hands and the choices that you make this week matter. And when we live in light of that day, it shapes today. So I want to close uh, by doing this. The, the difference between the servant, uh, who the wise and faithful manager, and the one who was unwise, uh, who was wicked, wasn't just their actions, but it was something deeper than that. It was their faith. You see, the wise servant knew the character and trusted the goodness and the vision of his master. And his actions reflected that. The wicked servant thought differently. He didn't trust that his master was going to return. And when push came to shove, you see, he had a very different vision for life than his master. The actions were different, but it was rooted in different content of their faith. So if you're here and you're like, wait, I thought Christians were saved by grace through faith, and now you're talking about works, how does this all work? I want to help you see how important the content of your faith is and how that shapes all of our actions, what you believe. Second thing that I want to say as we close is if you're here today and you're like, man, uh, judgment day is coming and I've got, I'm, I'm more side with the steward, the wicked steward. Like I've got some things in my life that I, I don't know what's in store for me. If that's you, I want to tell you the most uh, amazing news. Jesus is telling this story, but he's telling this story along the way to his most significant act that the Gospels record. He's telling this story on the way to being crucified. He's telling this story on the way to dying for the sins of humanity and rising again to give power over sin and the grave. And so what that means real practically is that as Jesus is telling you the story, as you're hearing it, he's not only wanting to tell you that there's a test coming, and he's not only wanting to tell you the content of the test, but he's also wanting to say, I'm willing not just to be your judge, but also to be your redeemer. I've gone to the cross for you, and I'm willing to take all the sin that you've done on me. And I'll give you, in its place, I'll give you my righteousness. Because Jesus is the ultimate wise and faithful steward. It's like, I'm willing to give that to you. So that if you put your trust in Jesus... If he is the content of your faith, when you appear before the judge, you look and you realize it's the one who died for you. It's your redeemer standing there. Theologians have said that at the cross, final judgment flashes forward into the crucifixion and is available for everyone who would put their trust in him, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin and died on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. There's forgiveness there. There's new life there. There's new hope there. It's amazing. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite everyone to bow their head. And if you're here today and you're like, I've never put my trust in Jesus. You have every right to go your own way and you can do that. And you can face the final judgment on your own. But a lot of us here, including myself, have realized, man, I I need an advocate. I need a redeemer. I need some help. I need someone to go before me on my behalf, and Christ has extended that. And so if that's you and you've never put your trust in Jesus, or maybe you grew up in church, but you've been away a long time and you're trying to make your way back to God, I want you to know God's not saying, hey, get yourself cleaned up and then come to me. But he's running down the road. And he's asking the question, will you let me heal you? Will you let me take your sin from you? Will you let me give you my righteousness? 
And so if that's you, if you've never put your trust in Jesus before and made him the Lord of your life, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to invite you to raise your hand. Or if you've been gone a long time and you're trying to make your way back, just throw your hand up in the air. We're not going to put your name on a billboard or call you up on stage. This is just an opportunity for you to respond, to make a life-changing response by faith. And every week we've got people saying, I want to follow Jesus for the first time. So if that's you, if you'll throw your hand up in the air, I just want to pray with you. All right, if you raised your hand, or i just like to ask the whole church to pray along with me. Just repeat after me, Jesus, you're amazing. You are setting an upside-down world right-side up again. You're so good. Thank you for loving and dying for me. Thank you for giving your life for me. And I choose to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's awesome. We're going to take communion together. If the officiants can come forward, they'll have the bread and the cup. And as the worship team leads us, I want to invite you to come forward. When we take of the bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. When we drink of the cup, we remember his blood poured out for us. And not only do we remember his commitment to us, but we recommit ourselves to him. Again, this is the fuel for us living this vision out. Such boundless grace, the God of ages. 
Silence. 